Let's talk about Riverside.fm, the leading podcast and video creation platform that's changing the game on how creators record content. Riverside.fm allows you to record studio quality audio and up to 4K video on their platform. Now you can interview a guest a thousand miles away and it'll sound like you're sitting in the same room. It's as easy to use as Zoom, but gives much higher quality audio and video recordings. Did we mention that they have a mobile app? This allows guests to connect directly from their phone and record content from anywhere. After your content is finished, you can easily grab clips to share them across your social media channels. So if you're looking for a hero platform for all your recording needs, from podcasts to webinars to other video content, you should be using Riverside FM. Sign up today so you can focus on your content and leave the quality to Riverside FM. Use promo code SHIPIT and receive a 30% discount on your first three months of your subscription. That's promo code SHIPIT to receive a 30% discount on the first three months of your subscription. Back to the show. Welcome to episode number 13 of the Talking Blues podcast. I am Josh. And you can tell by the title, um, we have a very, very, very special interview with Shaka Hislop, former goalkeeper, uh, and he's now on ESPN FC. It, it, very cool to talk to him. Really great interview. And um, we wanted to make this just because it's also a little bit of a longer interview. Um, so it's a really great interview to listen to. We wanted to make him uh, his kind of own episode here. Uh, I wanted you know, address Chelsea did win the game today against Burnley three nil. So depending on when this episode's come out, I don't know if it's today, but I'm recording this on Saturday. Great win by Chelsea three nil. That's all I'm really gonna say because we will have a review episode reviewing this game and previewing Chelsea's next game hopefully sometime this week, early this week. Uh, probably stay tuned for Tuesday or Wednesday. I would say that, but. Yeah, we have an interview with Shaka Hislop. Uh, it's going to be with myself, Alex, and him. So stay tuned for me in the outro. I just wanted to have a short intro here, but um, I think that's really everything. And now I'll go to my hour. I'll go to our interview with Shaka Hislop. We are back now with a very, very special guest, former footballer, and now you can catch him on ESPN FC, Shaka Hislop. How are you going? How are, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing very well, Josh. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. We're very excited to be joined by you. As you could tell from my intro, a little nervous, to be honest. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, we're excited to get into it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It's not... Not often I appear on a Chelsea podcast. Like, let me just let me just say that off the top. So I do want to start out. Um, you know, we'll kind of go from the beginning to you know modern day, and I want to start out by kind of asking you, you know, when you were young, when did you start playing football, and then also, you know, at your very tall height of six six, I believe. You know, were you told at what position to play? If you maybe, you know, I w- I would think a defensive role, um, but you can go into that a little bit. Uh, yeah, well, six four to give you to give you my my uh, my proper height. I, I've been listed as six six, and I'm I'm not quite sure why or, or <laughs> where that started. But I'm I'm six four, maybe just over. But I six six four. 
Um, and I, I've I've always played football. I, I have photos of myself and my dad as as a baby, no more than one or two, where he's literally holding me up while while I kick a ball. Um, and then growing up in Trinidad and Tobago, that's that's what we did. You know, certainly at the time, the the only the only sports really the the main sports in in, in the Caribbean were, were football and cricket. Um, I played both, uh, but I was I was better at football, and then. I, I became a goalkeeper because I remember when I was when I was 10 years old, trying to be putting together a national under 12 team. They were going to play a, a couple of exchange games at Venezuela. Um, and my, my dad took me to the trials for, for our zone, you know, we're near to where we lived. And as as I walked up, um, as I as I walked up to to register, the the um, the coach, guy by the name of uh, Basil Smith, nickname is Barney. I still, I still, I still remember that quite clearly. Um, he looked at me and, and just said, "You're the tallest. You're the goalkeeper." Um, and that was it. I'd, I'd never played in goal before that. Lo and behold, I made the zonal team, East Zone, and then made the national team. Um, and and um, quickly realized that goalkeeper was was probably best position. Saying so, I never, I never gave up on the dream of, of being a striker or, or being an outfield player um, one day. So much so that when I was going through uh, my high school years, um, I remember um, I, I would be at, at, a, at a young age, at probably under 13, so I still qualified to play under. So the age groups in Trinidad Tobago were we had an under 14, under 16, and then uh, under 19, which was basically our, our varsity team. Um, but at 13, I was the goalkeeper for, for the under-16s, but I played at centre-back for the under-14s. And then at 15, I was the goalkeeper of a varsity, but played, but played uh, as, as a centre-back for, for the under-16s. Uh, under so I, at least I still got to, I still got to, to um, play out in the park a little bit and, and satisfied that side of my, my ego. So uh, I'm surprised you didn't take the extra inches there for six six. I, I <laughs> you, you got to clear it up. Or... <laughs> uh, I'm listening. I, 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 I really don't know where where six six came from. I remember when I first moved to England and people kept seeing that or keep seeing uh, reports listing my height. The listing my height is six six and and one hundred and ninety five pounds. Well, I, I've never been six six, and I was one ninety five. Probably, you know freshman year at best at, at, at college. So uh, I'm not sure how that, that followed me around. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. I'm not going to steal a couple of inches. So going from, uh, you know, youth and like, how did the process go going from college to professional, obviously? Like, uh, you know, we see a lot of players now not actually, you know, skipping the college phase um, and going right into professional football. Yeah, well, it was, it was very different for me. As, as I mentioned, I grew up in Toronto and Tobago. And at the time, there was, you know, there was no professional league in Toronto and Tobago. There was no uh, major league soccer. Um, I, I graduated high school in, in 1987. So, you know, this is pre-MLS days even. So there, there weren't a whole lot of options. So coming out of, of, of Trinidad, you know, more, what most football players did at the time was pursue uh, a, a scholarship. Uh, at least that way, you know, you get your tuition paid for, you come out of 
of, of university with, with some kind of professional degree, and you embark on, 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 a, on you know, a, a career depending on, on that degree. Um, and, and that's what I did. It was only after, it was probably about my uh, yeah, sophomore year in college that Dwight York was then recruited by Aston Villa. It was just after um, uh, the US beat Trinidad and Tobago in 1989 to qualify for, for the World Cup, which was in Italy 1990. Um, and Dwight was a 16-year-old playing in the national team. Um, Gordon Taylor saw him playing for Trinidad and Tobago offered Dwight a, a trial up at Aston Villa and uh, they eventually signed him. So it was only after Dwight signed that people started seeing this kind of pipeline going from the Caribbean to England. But even so, you know, I kind of wondered if I'd, if I'd missed that boat myself. But uh, I eventually graduated in 1992 and, and started to give some thought uh, about what I wanted to do next. Uh, I, had, I had offers to, to go on and do a master's degree uh, on scholarship, um, but I wanted to I wanted to give football a try. I, I was actually born in England, uh, and my, my dad was in law school there, and and moved back to Trinidad and Tobago when I was just two years old. So I had a, a I held a British passport. So I thought I'd, I'd love to give I'd love to give football a try. Though I, I admit I, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to you know make that leap. How how was how was going to get seen. Um, I actually got drafted by by an indoor team called the Baltimore Blast, um, uh, and I decided, well, you know, let me go have, have a, you know, see see what what they're all about. Got drafted by them. As it turned out, and again, this is just pure coincidence, they were going to play two indoor games in England that summer, the summer of 1992, against none other than Aston Villa, where Dwight York had just signed. So, you know, it, it, it's in a strange coming together of, of, of these coincidences. I had no intention of playing indoor, but I got drafted by the Baltimore Blast. They then tore England um, and played two games against Aston Villa. I, I was able to play against Dwight York, who I'd known since I was eight years old. He, uh, eight on, uh, since I was eight or nine years old. He played in that um, national under 12 team that I, that I spoke about. So that's how long I've known Dwight. Um, and then I got spotted by, by a scout from Reading FC at that game. A, a one-man match in, in both the games against Aston Villa. Indoor games, uh, again, I reiterate. Um, and I got spotted by, by a, a Reading scout. And they offered me a trial. Um, so they flew me back up to England when, when I returned with Baltimore was on trial with them, and um, I guess I impressed them enough that they eventually offered me uh, a two-year contract, and, and that was the start of, of my professional career. So it's a, um, a strange coming together, as, as I mentioned, of a, you know, a number of different moving parts that I, I didn't really put in place. It just fell into place. So I actually just want to go back a little bit, because um, mm. you kind of went over it is you came to the United States to play college soccer, not yes. football, as we say here in the U S mm-hmm. um, and you were able to start as a freshman, which, you know, is, is pretty crazy as well. You know, not usually freshmen are in football, uh, American football, they call it red shirted. Well, um, I, I was, a, I was a red shirt. I was, I did red shirt my first year. I, I'll, oh, okay. Uh, oh, I'll, right. I, yes. I did red shirt my first year um, and then played for the, for the next four. So, yes. 
Oh, oh, so you did do like the fifth year senior option. I did. Yes, I did. Okay. All right. Okay. So then just going into that, um, your experience kind of in the United States, I don't know if it was your first time, um, but, you know, attending college there while also balancing um, soccer or football. Yeah, that, that, was, um, that was a challenge, but uh, a challenge I'm, I'm glad I, I was exposed to. You know, as, as you say, as you, as, as you mentioned, Josh, it's the first time I'd left around Tobago and come to the, come to the U.S., living my, on my own, um, you know, at college and, you know, not just, not just in an effort to date myself, but, but keep in mind, this was before the days of the Internet and, and uh, cell phones. So, you know, it was, it was you really just kind of separated yourself from, from the life that, that you had known. You know, my, my parents dropped me off at, at the airport in Toronto, They didn't even fly to the U.S. with me. I just had to kind of find my way once I once I got here, um, and then and then the challenge of balancing academics with my athletics. Again, it, it was tough, but one, but an experience that I'm 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 glad I had um, because it it forced me to mature. It also forced me into time management, which became important during my professional career. You know, you had to you had to figure out really quickly what was important and what wasn't. You had to, you had to keep on top of your academics because you had to maintain a certain grade point average to qualify for the team. I had to put in a certain number of hours on the training ground to continue to perform at the level that I at the very least expected of myself. And then, um, and, and why I say it was important for me, I'm, I'm happy that I had that, that experience is because as a professional, it's a totally different challenge in that you spend a certain amount of time on the training ground with, with, with your coach. And then after that, you're left to your own devices. So whether you put in extra hours on the training ground, that's up to you. You're not forced to do it. You have to make that decision yourself. How you manage your diet. Again, that's up to you. That's, you know, what... what your nightlife looks like. That's up to you. Uh, and I, I think the difference there, of course, is if you, if you don't manage those things properly, you'll find yourself out of, you know, out of, a, out of a job, out of a team pretty quickly. So you have to know what's important because there are so many people vying for that same position, that same job. And if you don't take care of these things, if you aren't disciplined in your, in your approach, you, your career will, will come to an end. Um, far quicker than, than I, I, I think you, you, you realize. So thankfully, I had that experience. And I, I think it was important that I did because I also um, I, I boast of, of, of a career that, that lasted 15 years. So even after, you know, going on to college and finishing college and graduating, I, I was still able to, to, um, to last a full 15 years as a, as a professional footballer. So going back now to Reading, um, I guess at that point, um, you weren't a starter coming in uh, into the team. Mm. So how did that work kind of fighting for your place, um, you know, to get that starting role? That's a great question because it was tough. You know, uh, I, I, and when I speak to um, young players or aspiring players now, um, I, I try to tell the story because – I think a lot of people see the end result, 
You know, they see the trappings of success, but they don't they don't see what goes into that. My my first few years at Reading were tough. I only stayed there for three years before I moved on to Newcastle. My first year in particular was was really hard. You know, I'd left a, a, a life that I knew and had settled in. Um, left a, a girlfriend back in the U.S. Thankfully, she's she's now my wife. So, um, you know, so I was able to, you know, we were able to to keep that relationship going. But here I was again, just going off into into an unknown, not knowing what to. The training is a whole lot different than I had been used to. The food is a whole lot different than I'd, I'd been used to. And and this is with a totally uncertain future. Because remember, as I mentioned, Reading offered me a trial. There was no guarantee of a contract at the end of this. And even when they did offer me a contract, it was for the pricely sum of £20,000 a year. So, you know, um, £400 a week. So compare that to what players are making now. So, you know, it, it was a lot to... Uh, a, a lot to, to, to kind of get used to, a lot to overcome. And I remember at the end of my first year, going back to Trinidad and, and speaking to my dad about it and, and told him I, I really did not want to go back. I, 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 I had played 10 games or so that season, hadn't played particularly well, really struggled on the field, really struggled off the field. And I was ready to call it quits. You know, I felt I could go back to university and do a master's degree and, and you know, be an engineer. Listen, I'd given this thing a shot. I'd given it my best shot. Um, and my father made the point, said, listen, you signed a two-year contract and you have a responsibility to that. You've given this club your word. Um, and you have to go and you have to honor this two-year contract. And if at the end of that second year, you still feel this way, then call it quits. And, and you know, then you walk away. So I went back up at the end of that at the end at the end of that season. So that would have been my first year as a pro was 92-93. That's the season I, my first season. And, um, so went back up in, in 93, you know, for July for preseason. The manager and assistant manager at the time, uh, Mark McGee was the manager at Reading, assistant manager was a guy called Colin Lee, called me into the office and said, Listen, we we just saw our starting goalkeeper, a guy by the name of Steve Francis. We got an offer from, I think it was Huddersfield. They got an offer from Huddersfield that they couldn't, they couldn't turn down. Reading was a small club and only playing in, in uh, what was then called the second division. It's now, that is now League One. Um, they got an offer from, from Huddersfield that they, that they couldn't, they couldn't refuse. And quite frankly, they didn't have any money to bring anybody else in. So I got the job as the starting goalkeeper. And I mean, that was how it was sold to me. But during that, that season, 93-94, I played every single game that season. Um, we got promoted from, from League One into what is now the championship. Um, so I had a really good season. They offered me, they offered, so now my contract was up at the end of, at the end of that season in 94. They offered me a, a, a new two-year deal. Um, that was for... I tripled my salary for sixty thousand to sixty thousand pounds a year. So now I'm I'm really rolling in it. I'm I'm living the high life. Uh, my, my girlfriend came up from the states, and and we were at that point living together. Uh, again, the following season, ninety four, ninety five, I played every single game that season. 
We finished second in the championship. That season, the Premier League were reducing their numbers. They had been 24 teams in the league, um, and they wanted to bring it down to 20. So four teams got promoted, got, got relegated, but only two got promoted. So, or was it 22 down to 20? But I can't remember what exactly it was. Four teams got relegated, two teams got promoted. So um, all of a sudden we finished second. And for the first time ever, second wasn't good enough for automatic promotion up to the Premier League. We went to the playoffs. We lost in the playoff final to, to Bolton in a game that, that, uh, that, went, to, that went to extra time. Um, we eventually lost 4-2 or 4-3. I can't remember what it was after, um, after 120 minutes. Um, but I got player of the season for Reading that year. And then Newcastle came in with a bid for me. And they, they bid one and a half million pounds for me uh, that, that, that summer. That was 95. So again, 95 was a big summer for me. That was the year my wife and I got married. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary. Uh, while I was in Trinidad, I got a call from, from my agent saying, you know, Newcastle put this bid together and it looks like this deal is going to happen. Um, and eventually it did. So, um, so it was, again, as, as tough as it was, uh, you know, there's a few things that I, I am, I'm always keen to mention. How difficult it was um, to start with. The value in sometimes just being true to your word, regardless of, of how that feels at, at the time, and then battling through some of your own low periods. Um, and then all of a sudden, things, you know, things look different the other side. And, and that's, the, that's what people, you know, people notice. People notice me playing for Newcastle. Uh, people notice the transfer fee that, that Newcastle were willing to pay, pay, for, pay to Reading for me. They don't notice some of these struggles. They don't notice when uh, in the early years when I didn't have enough money to, to buy a car and I would take the bus to training and the training ground was a, a three-mile walk from, from the nearest, nearest station. So I would have to take the bus or the train to this station and walk three miles, train, do my extras in the gym, walk three miles back to the, to the train station and... and um, and, and go back home and, and do it all over the next day. You know, those are the things that, uh, as, I, as I said before, when I'm speaking to young players, I'm, I'm keen to highlight because too often, you know, they, the focus is on, is, is on the trappings of success and, and not what it takes sometimes to, to get you there. So as you mentioned, because of your, you know, great performances, you're able to come from Reading onto a team uh, of the caliber of Newcastle United at the time. And you're competing for the top place with Manchester United uh, in the 96-97 season. Mm -hmm. So now from you uh, mentioning how you came in second with Reading to now coming in second with Newcastle United, how did you kind of, you know, deal with those losses and especially dealing with at, at such a high club now? Um, where, where you're competing for the top spot. Yeah, that, that, again, that was tough because it, it was a, a totally different um, experience. You know, the, the pressure with, with Newcastle United at the time, and Newcastle had, um, they just sold Andy Cole to, to Manchester United, bought Les Ferdinand, David Ginola, they brought in Warren Barton and myself in the summer of, of 95. And there was a lot of expectation around the club. And then we started the season really well. 
we started the season really well. I was playing and um, we jumped out to the, to the head of the league. We were playing exciting football. We weren't defending an awful lot, but we were scoring. Um, we were scoring tons. Um, and then I tore a thigh muscle at Stamford Bridge, as, as, as it would happen. And um, I was out of the team. But we, we kept playing well and we extended our, league, our lead at the top. And then all of a sudden, at the start, the start of, of, of 96, um, so around January 96, we just couldn't put a... We, we were still playing well at home, but we couldn't win on the road. And Manchester United, having that experience of being champions, just slowly chipped away at that lead, slowly chipped away at that lead. Uh, and eventually, the pressure just told on us. I, I, I always say that um, I, I feel you have to, before you win a title, you have to come close. You have to experience that pressure and you have to know what that pressure feels like and, and know how to deal with that pressure. And if you, if you look at it in today's football, Liverpool lost, um, not last season, the season previously, they were running away with the league and then Manchester City did to them as Manchester United did to us in 95-96. In and all of a sudden, Manchester City win the, win the title by a point. But Liverpool responded the next season and they win the league. Liverpool lost the Champions League final to, to Real Madrid. Um, the following season, they win it. So you have to have that experience of coming close, of that pressure and know what it takes. And I just don't feel that as a club, as close as we came in, in 95, 96, we were prepared for that disappointment. Kevin Keegan was sacked. Kenny Dalglish was brought in. There was a whole lot of upheaval at the club. So as disappointed as 95, 96 was in, in how we lost that, that huge lead we had, uh, as a club, I don't think we learned from it. And, and again, even though we finished second again in 96, 97, we were actually trailing. Liverpool were running away with the league uh, and should have won it. And then they collapsed back end of the league. Manchester United won, won the league. We finished second and Liverpool actually finished third when they really should have won it. With four games to go, they were top of the league, I think it was. And somehow managed to finish third. So um, it, it, was, it was a tough uh, learning experience for the club. It was tough for us as a team and it was tough for me individually because you don't get many chances you know um to, to lift the title like like the premier league title well you were saying there's lots of turmoil there um at newcastle when you were there but surely there couldn't have been more then than there is right now but it's a it's a it's a it's a different set of circumstances no i, I think a lot of newcastle's problems come from the ownership I, i'm i, I I'm not a huge fan of Mike Ashley. Listen, I, I understand uh, how expensive it is to, to run a football club. He's not a Middle Eastern owner and or doesn't have oil money, um, you know, like um, City's owner or Abramovich at Chelsea. But I just don't feel that it's a good fit culturally who Newcastle are as a club and who he is as, as, as an owner. And I, I think that turmoil is, is starting to tell. Um, for instance, in, in today's football, as, as much as the prize money has, uh, has, has, has mushroomed over the years, up until recently, two years ago, 
Manchester, uh, Newcastle United's record signing was Michael Owen, which was 10 years previously. So whereas, you know, the money continued to go crazy, Newcastle weren't keeping up. You know, they, they weren't spending. They weren't keeping up. And eventually, it, it cost them. And now the big challenge is, you know, if you don't have Champions League football, if you don't even have European, uh, Europa League football, and don't look like you're going to even get close, how do you continue to attract the biggest talents in world football? And that's where Newcastle have found themselves right now. So after Newcastle, obviously, you move on to West Ham for the first mm. of two stints that you have there. I'm assuming that's who you identify the most with. I can see in the background of your... Uh, I've, I've, got a, I've got a Newcastle and a Reading as well, but my, my West Ham is, is, is up right now. So this is... This is, um, I, I know not everybody could probably see, see, what we, what, uh, see with my, where I'm sitting right now. But this is where I sit when I do ESPN FC. And most of the time I've, I have Newcastle up, um, but I decided to change and, and go West Ham. But to your question, Alex, yes, I, I could probably identify most with, with West Ham. I, I, I spent five years in total at West Ham. I felt that I played my best football at West Ham. Um, and in particular, my first season there, 98-99, um, where I, I got ham of the year that season. That is, we, we finished fifth in the league, and that's still West Ham's highest ever finish in the, in the Premier League. Um, so I, uh, it, it, it certainly was a, a wonderful experience and, and one that, you know, everything about it, you know, the, the excitement around the place, it was very different from Newcastle. Newcastle was high pressure. Um, West Ham wasn't. West Ham were a club that um, grounded in, in Ron Greenwood traditions. That you, they, people explain to you from the time you get there, it's about how you play the game. It's just as important as, as, as winning. Um, and, and I think it, it showed. It showed in, in who we were as a team. It showed in the personalities. Harry Redknapp was the manager. We made signings like... Um, Ian Wright, Stuart Pearce. You had players like Trevor Sinclair, Paolo Di Canio, Davos Suka from, from Real Madrid. Um, Neil Ruddock came in from Liverpool. It was an incredible um, collection of, of very talented players who all had real personality about them. And, and it showed on the field. So I now want to go to your days with Portsmouth where you were named in the first divisions team of the year, I believe twice. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm correct with that. So I want to, you know, talk about that a little bit um, as because I know West Ham United, uh, you know, like you said, you spent most of your years there um, kind of ended on a little bit of a sour note. So I don't want to touch too much on that. But uh, now you can go into your time at Portsmouth. Yeah, no problem. No, well, I was named in, into the first division um, or championship as it is now team once because I only played one year with with. Uh, with, with Portsmouth in, in the championship. We, we won the league, so we got promoted. I was, I was also in the, in the, again, using today's, using today's kind of, uh, uh, standings, championship team, um, my, final, my final season at Reading. So that, that's the two times that I, I was named in, in the team. So my final season at Reading, which was 94-95, and then my first season with Portsmouth, um, which was 2002-2003. Um, yeah, we, we won the league that year. And, and again, it was Harry Redknapp. Harry Redknapp had been sacked as, as, as manager of, of, of West Ham. It's a, um, 
just before the end of my second to last season. Uh, and he moved on to, to Portsmouth and, and um, convinced me to come down there. Um, again, convinced me that he's building, building a team that would, would, would get promoted. And, and he did exactly that. Signed Paul Merson from Arsenal, a couple of other really talented players. And we won the league. We won the league and got promoted. And, and that, really was, that really was something. We, we, um, again, we got up to an incredible start and led the league pretty much from, from start to finish. The big challenge for, for us um, came that next season, where as a newly promoted team, it's always difficult. And, and so it proved for, for us at, at, uh, at Portsmouth. We were in the bottom three most of the season, and then all of a sudden, the last nine games of the season, I think it was, um, and I, I really should check the record on this, but I think it was the, we won eight of our last nine games uh, to, to stay up. So we were in the bottom three pretty much all season. Oh, well, not all season. We started, we started well, um, then had a really tough time through the middle uh, and found ourselves in the bottom three. And then I think I'm right in saying we won eight of our last, last nine games or, or something, around, something around that. And that got us out to the bottom three and, and, and got us to survive. That was an incredible run and an incredible uh, finish to, to that season for us, for us to survive. So now going kind of, we're kind of towards the end of your career now, West Ham, mm-hmm. your second stint, uh, then you end up going to MLS with FC Dallas. Um, but, you know, we haven't touched on the national team yet. Um, you know, you played one game for England, the under 21s, and then I guess decided to go back uh, and play for Trinidad. What was that decision like? And obviously you also played with the Trinidad Tobago in their first World Cup appearance. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I was born in England and I have no recollection of my time in England, um, you know, before going to, to play professionally. So I, I've, I always regard myself as, as from Trinidad and Tobago. Both my parents are from Trinidad and Tobago. And, and that's, you know, growing up, I always dreamt of, of, of representing the Trinidad and Tobago national team. I was actually named in a, in a senior team when I was still at Howard University. Um, uh, this was in, in 1990 for, for the Shell Caribbean tournament, summer of 1990. But, uh, and again, another strange tale of circumstance, there was an attempted coup in the country during that, during that tournament. So the tournament got cancelled prematurely. Um, I was on the bench for one game, didn't, didn't play in the, in the second, and then the, and then the tournament was cancelled, as I mentioned. Um, and, and then um, after signing pro terms, I'd started talking again about representing Trinidad and Tobago. But at, at the time, um, Trinidad and Tobago was pretty much run by a FIFA vice president by the name of Jack Warner. And he and I did not get on. It, it's, I mean, that's as nicely as I can put it. He and I simply did not get on. Um, and so there was this big stalemate between the two of us about my coming back to represent Trinidad Tobago and the conditions around that. Now, I, I felt that everybody who represented the national team needed to sign a contract and, and have that. At, at the time, players, certainly local players, weren't um, signing contracts, weren't guaranteed even things like insurance. They weren't guaranteed any kind of payment um, in, in representing the national team. And, and I, I thought that was wrong. I was like, listen, I'm playing, at the time I was playing for Reading, 
I, I have insurance through, through, my, through my, my club. I am getting paid through, through my club. I, find, I, I think the, the locally, locally based players should, should be getting the same. Um, but that turned into this big, long standoff, and eventually I, I refused to go until, until they can guarantee that. Uh, and then, earlier in the interview, I, I spoke about getting called up and, and making the junior national team for, for under 12. The coach for that under 12 team, Berta Sinclair, got named as the men's national coach in, this would have been around 1998, maybe early 1999. And I, I, I always held the greatest of respect for, for Berta Sinclair from those days, from my days of playing under 12 and under 14. Um, and he called and asked if I, if I would come and join the team. Had it not been for Bertil, uh, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have joined joined up with the with the Trinidad Tobago national team. But you also write to point out that I did represent um, one of the England junior teams as, as an overage player uh, with an under twenty three in, in the friendly, and that was just Glenn Glenn Hoddle was was the was the head coach. He he called and invited me into the team, and I, I just thought it was a good opportunity for me to play football because. Uh, for me to play international football because at, at the time, you know, Jack Warren and I still had this standoff. We didn't seem like it was ever going to resolve itself. But from the time Bertha Sinclair got named as coach and he called me, that's all I wanted to do. And I went back and, and joined the Trans Tobago national team and, and played played for the national team. I was, I was then, my first game for Trans Tobago was actually a friendly against Jamaica. I was then asked to join the England team again um, after that. And I mean, I would have still qualified because, because it was just a friendly for Trinidad and Tobago. So I hadn't really um, declared um, my international status. But as I said, I'd always considered myself to, to be from Trinidad and Tobago. So, I, um, so I, I, I joined the national team, went back and, and played under Burton. Uh, and and things, things were going well, you know, and then, uh, Bertil eventually was 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 fired himself around 2000. Um, another coach came in. We didn't qualify for the 2002 World Cup, disappointingly. And then Bertil was brought back in for the start of the qualifying campaign for 2006. And even though he was he was fired midway through that through that campaign, and Leo Bernaco was brought in. We we qualified for, for the 2006 World Cup through through the playoffs. You know, it was that was an incredible team. Dwight York was with, with you know Dwight York, who everybody knows, was on that team. Russell Latipi, Stuart John, who who also played in, in England. It really was a, a, a wonderfully talented team. Um, and we we qualified through the playoffs, and they then beat Bahrain over over two legs to qualify for the 2006 World Cup, which was. Trying to be was first ever World Cup appearance and only World Cup appearance. Yeah, and I, I want to touch on that because one of the most significant games, um, or probably the most significant game, as you kind of mentioned for Trinidad and Tobago, you were able to play in uh, their first ever World Cup match, and it, you did not give up any goals. It was a, it was a draw against Sweden. So I want to, you know, I want to ask you about that. Uh, your feelings, probably, you know, swirling around, going crazy during that moment. It's well that that was a, a, a cool, a very strange day because um I actually wasn't due to start. 
Calvin Jack had been the starting goalkeeper, but he picked up picked up an injury a game or two, and when he warm up games just before the World Cup, so um, he you know we weren't quite it was touch and go, and then he was named in the starting lineup, and then all of a sudden in the warm up, he realized he was injured. Uh, he said he couldn't continue. Went over to Leo Benaka and said, you know, he just wasn't just wasn't right. And uh, Benaka looked at me, called me over, asked me if I was ready to go, and my answer was absolutely yes. So it was different in that, you know, I had no nerves. I had a good night's sleep. I wasn't nervous at all because, as far as I could I could tell, I, I was going to be on the bench and, and just looking on. Um, had a big breakfast. I was actually kicking shots. And the other goalkeeper in the warm-up, so I wasn't even too bothered in the warm-up. And then all of a sudden, with 10 minutes to go, got this call, are you ready? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Um, and uh, did a, a quick warm-up with, with the goalkeeper and coach. I was happy with how I was seeing the ball. And then threw me in at the deep end, as, as they say. And, and that's when, once the game starts, that's where things get easy. That's where you're used to it. You're used to being on the field. And you're used to playing. You know, it's build up that's, that's nerve-wracking and the build up that gets to you. But I didn't, I didn't have to contend with, with the build up. You know, as I, I, I say, I thought I was just going to be on the bench. Um, and the game just went. And then we had, you know, it was going really well. Then had a player, Avery John, sent off in the 46 minutes. All of a sudden, we play the entire second half with 10 men. And Sweden keep coming and they keep coming. And I just keep getting in the way probably the best way I can put it. And um, we held on for a draw. It, it was, it, it, with 15 minutes to go, you know, I, I also tell a story. Uh, probably about 75% of the stadium were with yellow shirts of Sweden. You know, and you could see pockets of red of the Trans-Tobago fans around the stadium. But with about 15 minutes to go, the entire stadium were, were singing for Trans-Tobago. And it was loud. And it, it, even now, just talking about it, it makes, it, it makes the, the hairs in my arms stand up. And, and you, we, we, were, we were on the cusp of, of something great. So um, uh, I heard a, a comedian phrase it this way once, and, and I, I, I thought it was perfectly put. We won that game nil-nil. Trinidad Vega won the game nil-nil. It, it really was an experience and without question, the, the proudest moment of, of my footballing career. So now I just kind of want to ask you some general questions about your career. So first mm. I'm going to ask who is the best player that you played with on the same team and who's the best player you came against? Oh, best player I played with Dwight York with the Trinidad Tobago national team. Best player I played against Alan Shearer. Uh, I also played with Alan Shearer uh, at, uh, at Newcastle United, but I played against him a, a few times as well. Um, still, the, probably the most difficult player I played against, who was the most difficult for me, was, was a guy by the name of Matt Letissier, who played almost his entire career, his entire career, with, with Southampton. I had the most trouble with, with, with uh, Letissier. Uh, more so than, than most others. But just in terms of pure talent, Dwight with Alan Shearer against. Um, so one other thing that I, when we're listening to ESPN FC, Cristiano Ronaldo you uh, came up against. So yeah. you want to talk about that experience? 
Yeah, uh, Ronaldo scored his first Manchester United goal against me. It's as uh, people continually write into the show every single year when the anniversary rolls around. Alyssa, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I was playing for Portsmouth at the time, and um, I remember the goal. I, well, especially seeing that it, it it seems to it seems to pop up on my social media timeline every single year as well. Um, Manchester United a free kick out wide. And he whipped a, a free kick in near post. Two players were coming in. Uh, Paul Scholes from Manchester United and Nigel Quasi from, from Portsmouth, who was marking Paul Scholes. And they both, got, they both got very close to the ball and missed by just inches. So that's the difficult part as a goalkeeper. Now, when players take free kicks from wide, they tell them, hit that far post area because it makes life difficult for the goalkeepers. If the goalkeeper goes to commit for the, for the, the far post, you know, cross free kick and somebody gets a touch, it just trickles in at the near post. But if you, but the goalkeeper would then have to cover or make a, a quick assessment as to whether anybody can get on the end of it. Uh, and, and if he thinks somebody has a chance to, he has to play for that. Uh, and if that, player misses, then it's just going to sneak in at the far post. And that's what happened. Paul Scholes and Nigel Quasi got very close. And I had to play, I had to play to Paul Scholes getting a touch. Uh, and then once, once, once he didn't or he missed it, there was, there was nothing I could do and it sneaked in at the far post. So the goal is credited to Ronaldo. So, um, so I say, if it wasn't for me, Ronaldo wouldn't go on to be the great player that he now is. He's got me to thank for all of that. <laughs> so just real quick um because this was a pretty quick thing with fc dallas um you suffered a back injury that kind of mm. led to to the end of of your football your football career and i just want to know with that experience is that like something where you're like you suffer the injury and you're like all right time, you know <laughs> we're done yeah. here or does someone need to like kind of convince you that like i i you know i think it's time well, I, I knew it was, it was coming to be time. So this was in 2007. I was 38 years old. And I kind of knew that, you know, time was drawing to a close. And my contract was up with, with FC Dallas at the end of that season. Anyway, and I'd been struggling with this back injury for a couple of months. I had to have my back cracked. I had to have manipulation after every single training session. And it just got too much to manage. You know, it, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't train as hard as I wanted to. Um, it became too much to manage. And because of the rules uh, within Major League Soccer about bringing in players and roster places and salary caps, uh, the club came and asked if I'd consider just, you know, retiring early and allowing them to bring in somebody uh, to at least fill that roster spot who they could call on if need be. Um, and as I said, my contract was up at the end of that season anyway. And, and I thought uh, it was only fair to the club to, to do that, to step aside. If I, if I couldn't contribute in a meaningful way, um, you know, I, I felt I, I owed it to the club. I owed it to the game to step aside and let somebody else have that opportunity. Um, you know, can't, game can't just be about money, you know. Um, and that's what it did. Um, so I, I announced my retirement, uh, I think it would have been in August, September, some, somewhere around there, I think September of, of 2007. Um, and that, I, even so, even though I knew that 
you know, I was coming to the end of my career and, you know, it probably would be at best only a few more months before um, I had to call it a day. It, it was tough, you know, because playing football had been my dream and I'd lived that dream for 15 years and that was all anew. And I, I loved every minute of it. I loved, you know, the highs, the lows and the in-betweens. And to finally say, you know, no more and, and kind of um, admit to as much um, was tough. You know, it was mentally, it was, it was, it was taxing, you know. Um, but, you know, um, at least I'm, I'm still involved in the game now. And I'm, I'm happy for that opportunity where we ESPN FC that I can still, you know, have fun with the game and still be in love with the game and talk about it in a in a meaningful way so you know um there's nothing better than playing but i think what, what i'm doing now um uh comes in a comes in a close second well no comes in a distant second but second nonetheless so this is a chelsea podcast so we have to ask you some chelsea questions <laughs> otherwise people will yell let at me, us let me just say yeah i know now West Ham, there is no club that West Ham fans yep. hate. Okay. They hate Millwall the most, right? West Ham and Millwall, that is, you know, you don't want to get in the middle of that. But for any number of years, um, West Ham and, and, and Millwall haven't actually been in the same division. So they, they haven't, you know, met unless they get drawn against each other in a cup. West Ham hate Chelsea more than anything mm-hmm. else. Now, and as far as clubs go, the closest club to us geographically is actually Spurs. But West Ham fans hate Chelsea more than anything else. And the strange thing is, right, and you get to know West Ham fans, you get to understand that. And then you, you get to know Chelsea fans. Chelsea couldn't care less about us. <laughs> Chelsea fans couldn't bother about West Ham. Well, the West Ham fans are foaming at the mouth, but Chelsea fans couldn't care less. They're like, ah, oh, just, another, just another London team. Um, so you kind of have to accept that that uh, dichotomy of, of of existence, you know, <laughs> how important it is to your fans, but uh, Chelsea don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the big situation, something that you'd be very, uh, you know, knowledgeable about is the situation with Kepa, obviously him being mm-hmm. replaced with Edward Mendy. What's going on with him? What, like, obviously his confidence is low. And, like, how do you get out of that funk when you're in it? Uh, I, I don't think uh, Kepa can get out of that funk at Stamford Bridge. I think he needs to find a new club. Uh, and I'll probably go so far as to, to even say he probably needs to find a new league. You know, he's still highly regarded in Spain, maybe a return there. Um, and also just, you know, finding a club and a manager who, believes in you, you know, and, and gives you that opportunity to go out and be yourself and play your own game. And now the, the, the challenge, the, the, the challenge um, that I think a lot of goalkeepers face is, especially when you come into a new club and you're asked to play a certain way that isn't natural to you, is you then make bad decisions one way or the other, whether it's, you know, passing the ball out to the back or whether you come for a cross that you shouldn't or a through ball that you shouldn't, you find yourself making these, these bad decisions. And then those bad decisions play on, on your confidence, on your mentality. And then you start making mistakes and doing things that normally come so easily and so natural to you. So whereas Kepa is an incredible shot stopper, and if you go back to looking at his time in, in, in La Liga, he's an incredible shot stopper. 
But because you make bad decisions about crosses, about passing the ball out to the back, um, and, and your confidence takes a hit, all of a sudden the things that make you a good goalkeeper start to unravel as well. And I think that's what, you, what you've seen with Kepa. Now, I think he needs to go and find a club who will play to his strengths, who, who won't ask him to you know, do some of the things that don't come naturally to him. You just be who you are. We trust you in doing what, what you do. We'll make sure and we'll have a defense that knows that and, and, and works with you. And, and, and I will allow Kepa to, to find that confidence again. I, I don't think he can, I, I, I'm, uh, as we said right now, I'm 99% certain he doesn't find that confidence again at Chelsea. Um, I'm, and I'm highly doubtful that he finds that confidence again in the Premier League. Maybe it just means going back to a league and a country that he knows well and certainly excelled in before. I guess now we'll go to the complete opposite situation with Edouard Mendy going on and having three clean sheets in a row. Um, he's now going to go into this weekend's matchup uh, against Burnley. You know, in this situation now where you have three clean sheets in a row, you're playing really well for a new club that, you know, I wouldn't say Chelsea fans had, you know, very high expectations for him just to be better than Kepa. So mm-hmm. that's, I wouldn't say that's, you know, high expectations. Is there even more pressure on Mendy now because he's playing so well? How does that work? That, that's a pressure that you like. You know, keeping clean sheets, you build confidence. You know, um, and, and that, that, that's, as a goalkeeper, that's what you are asked to do. And, and that's how you're judged. You know, however you keep those clean sheets, as long as you keep those clean sheets. And, and he's done that. Um, I, I, I don't think it, it, you know, it doesn't add to his pressure. That's his confidence. And, you know, like every other position on the park, confidence plays such a part. Um, so uh, Mendy will continue, continue to, get, to get better with, with, with those clean sheets. I think the challenge, the challenge for Edward Mendy is when you do concede, or when you do make that mistake, because every single player makes mistakes. Every single player finds himself at fault for something or the other. Uh, and I think the, the great ones are the ones who bounce back from those mistakes quicker. Um, if, you can, if you can take that, you know, knock on the chin um, and come back out, you know, for argument's sake, one slips through his hands and rolls through his legs and, um, uh, and, and he, he takes that, that, uh, that gut punch. And then the next game he comes out and, you know, has, a, has, a, has an incredible game. I think that's the sign of, of, of a goalkeeper that you want to have long-term, somebody who will deal with those mistakes because make no mistake about it again, make no bones about it. doesn't matter whether you're a goalkeeper, midfielder, defender, striker. You are going to make mistakes and you're going to be at fault for something. And it, it, it's, it's, it's how you cope with it that, that counts. So last season, Chelsea's defense was a big struggle for them. We brought in Thiago Silva and Ben Chilwell. What kind of effect do you think Thiago Silva, especially as that leader, as that kind of veteran who can really give a good presence, what does that give to the back line and, uh, in general for defense? Well, first of all, I think Chilwell is a really good signing. Chelsea needed somebody um, on the left-hand side, certainly, for, to, to build around on the future. Thiago Silva, I, I think, is, a, is an inspired signing. Um, 
and and I say that because uh, I actually think Rudiger is a very good defender. I, I think he's an incredible defender. I just don't think he's a leader. And and sometimes you have these good defenders who are asked to lead from the back, uh, and and they struggle. Um, similar to that, uh, Rafael Varane at Real Madrid. Rafael Varane is a World Cup winner, Champions League winner. He is without question one of the best centre-backs in world football. Rafael Varane is a world-class centre-back alongside Sergio Ramos. When Sergio Ramos isn't there and he has the assumed role of leadership, I don't think he's anywhere near as good. And I think that's what's, what's going on with Rudiger. I just, I just don't feel he's a leader. So Thiago Silva coming in, I think, brings the best out of Rudiger. And I know that that's not a partnership that Frank has used, has used those two together at all this season. Um, I, I, I don't think so. Um, but I think, that is the, I think that is Chelsea's best centre-back pairing. Those two alongside each other. Um, we see if it, if it happens sooner rather than later. Uh, but that's, I, I think if you get those two on the park, you see the biggest benefit of, of the Thiago Silva signing. Uh, so my final question for you is you, were, you had the pleasure of being able to play with Frank Lampard in the Premier League mm-hmm. um, while, while you two were in at the same time. I taught him everything he knows, I got claim. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my question for you is, you know, he's made some questionable decisions as manager for Chelsea. And, you know, Chelsea fans are kind of 50-50, even though he is a Chelsea legend. Um, you know, what, what do you think about him and his future with Chelsea? Listen, I, I've, I've, seen, I've seen Frank and how he applies himself as a player. Um, in his earliest days at, at, at West Ham, people didn't think he would, he would make it as far as, as he did. But Frank, Frank is a tireless worker. Um, he will, he will, he will do whatever is asked, whatever is needed to 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 make a success of whatever he put he puts his mind to, mind to. When he first signed for Chelsea as well uh, as a player, a lot of people questioned that signing. It was only eleven million pounds or something of the sort. I mean, that was a lot of money back in the day. But even then, people questioned whether Chelsea had overpaid. We don't need Frank Lampard. And, you know, just look at, at how that turned out for, for Frank and, and, and his Chelsea career. I think similarly here, he's still learning his job. Um, so he's going to make mistakes. But I think the mark uh, or the making, the mark of the makings of a good manager is somebody who is prepared to make big decisions. Dropping Kepa, record goalkeeper signing, is a big decision. Somebody who's prepared to... Um, take chances in what they're doing and has a, has, a, has a philosophy around what they're doing. And a Frank, I think Frank does that. So just seeing how he's managed some of those big decisions, um, both in terms of who he's let go or who he's dropped, who he's brought in, how he's rotated his squad, shows that Frank has the makings of a good manager for me. And, and I don't doubt for a minute that he is going to do whatever it takes in terms of application on the training ground, uh, reviewing film, studying the studying an opponent, whatever it takes. Um, Frank, Frank, Frank will do well. I, I think Frank will be Frank will be a wonderful manager. I, I have no doubt about it. Still learning his trade, 
but I, I think it's only a matter of time before he's regarded as, as one of the best. Shaka Hislop is a former professional footballer and is now on ESPN FC. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, so that was our interview with Shaka Hitzlop. We hope you enjoyed it. What a great guy. Um, amazing career that he had. He was able to play a very, you know, a very long time, and now he's able to cover the sport he loves. And, yeah, it was just a great interview with him, and I'm sure if Alex was here with me, uh, he, he would agree as well. That is going to wrap up episode number uh, 12, 13. Episode number 13, I'm forgetting episodes now. Episode number 13 of the Talking Blues podcast. Once again, we will hopefully have a episode out early this week, Tuesday or Wednesday. Stay tuned for a recap of Chelsea's game against Burnley. Again, a 3-0 win. Let's go Chelsea. Let's go Blues. Um, and then hopefully we'll be previewing Chelsea's next game uh, as well. Wherever you're listening, please drop a rating and review of five stars. Subscribe wherever you're listening as well. Go follow us on Twitter at Talking Blues uh, and share us out. Share on your Twitter and tag us at Talking Blues so we know that you're sharing us. And then share with at least, share with friends and family and share with at least one friend. Really hope you enjoyed episode number 13. And we will see you next time. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening.